Hello and welcome to the Explore Nash podcast. Man, it feels good to be back behind a microphone. Uh, if you did not know, my wife and I recently had a newborn, and so this is why episodes have not been coming out. Uh, that's been quite the journey, but it feels really good to be behind the microphone again. Today's episode is brought to you by Blessed Day Coffee. If you need some caffeine in your life, head over to blessedaycoffee.com and use the code EXPLORE20 to take 20% off of your order. I also just recently had their new, it's like this... Um, caramel espresso bean brittle and it is amazing they have like seven or eight different flavors uh, head over to blessedaycoffee.com you can get it it's really really good a lot of caffeine i took a bite of it around 3 p.m the other day and it kept me up until like 4 a.m and i know the baby also helps with that but uh that definitely kept me up so if you're needing a caffeine kick head over to blessedaycoffee.com use the code explore 20 today we are talking about civil war history with Joseph Ritchie, who is the historian of the Battle of Franklin Trust. Joseph, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing or great. Today. Uh, I don't even know what time it is. I think we're in the morning, but it's uh, okay. uh, great to be with yeah. you, Stuart. Uh, so you recently just got a job promotion with the Battle of Franklin Trust. What is sure. the Battle of Franklin Trust, and what is your day-to-day look like? Uh, so the Battle of Franklin Trust was formed and founded in 2009. It was a merger between the Carter House Museum and Carnton Plantation to come together as one entity, in charge of really being uh, the kind of the caretakers and the interpreters of the story of the Battles of Spring Hill, now with Ripa Villa incorporated into our third site in 2021 down in Spring Hill, uh, and the Battle of Franklin, which of course both of those events occurred November the 29th and November the 30th of 1864. Okay, so let's walk through uh, maybe a little bit more of the timeline because I know um, what's interesting about you guys said you started in 2009. A lot of the battlefields in the United States were preserved 20 to 30 years after the battle. Shiloh is a great example of that. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Shiloh is, what they did with Shiloh is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we drove through there uh, in September and we had like a little guided tour with like the historian of the area and uh, just incredible how they were able to preserve that. Why was Franklin not preserved like other battlefields? So the battle takes place in 1864 and by the time the war's over six months later, April of 65, we're thrust into the reconstruction process, then out of reconstruction, we are tossed into the kind of the Jim Crow era. We cross into the next century and we're fighting a world war. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that the veterans and civilians in Franklin weren't trying to get Franklin turned into a National Park Service site. Uh, they had attempted some dozen times and it had failed all 12 times. Uh, by 1914, one of the last proposals is simply just to put an archway over the Columbia Turnpike right in front of the Carter House and call it a battlefield wow um but even by you know 1910 there's houses and structures being built on the battlefield and i think in large part it has to do with the battle itself being such a kind of crushing defeat uh for the confederacy such a sort of uh, kind of flashpoint battle that was over in only five hours yep. um and it's right there towards the tail end of the war so i think it it's overshadowed so much by the events that preceded it in spring hill and the events that follow up with it in nashville that it is that kind of just a fraction of a second in our collective sort of memory of the war. Now, uh, by 2000 and really we go back to 1995, some of the first battlefield reclamation efforts were being made down in Murray County, down mm-hmm. in Spring Hill, uh, where a section of battlefield was preserved by then what was called the Civil War Preservation Trust, then eventually Civil War Trust, and today they're known as the American Battlefield Trust. That's about a 90-acre piece of land. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it's, right, it's, it's right next to that Spring Hill plant, right? No, that's uh, okay. so this is north of Saturn Parkway. Yep. 
uh, over on Kedron Road. And then there was another section of Battlefield saved about 10 years ago. That's 90 acres. That's immediately that's uh, to the okay. east of Columbia Pike or yep. Highway 31. It's across from the GM plant, and it's next door to Ripavilla. So altogether, there's about 300 acres of Battlefield saved in Spring Hill. And that movement sort of ignited the fires that by 2005, 2006, some of those efforts made their way to Franklin. The purchase of the old Franklin City Golf Course turned mm-hmm. into Eastern Flank Battlefield Park, which had, had always been a Civil War battlefield. It just happened to have a, a golf, golf course, course on top of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and then some of the more recent developments had been around the Carter Hill area, 2014, 2015, 2016, and over a kind of 17-year period, uh, someone was doing the math the other day and said over 17 years we've spent close to 23 and a half million dollars wow. to purchase back about 170 to 180 acres of Franklin Battlefield. But it it's so necessary because if we do not preserve this, we're doomed to repeat it. Uh, I think that's a a large piece of it too. Yep. And then I also think it's it's just the general, you know, you you said it earlier. You go to all these other battlefields and they're so they're perfectly preserved. pristine and so yep. perfectly kind of manicured. And it's easy for us to think about what unfolded there. Uh, but the, the National Park Service is great. I, I always roll this out from time to time as they have a uh, an entire kind of understanding of interpretive plan for what they call interpreting an interrupted landscape. And they're talking about a highway running through it. Okay, what about a residential neighborhood, a dog yeah. park, uh, a bunch of businesses? A library. A, a, yeah, the library, the high school, a major Public thoroughfare. office. Yeah, it's all sitting right on top Chick-fil-A. of Chick-fil-A. Don't even get, get, yeah, yeah. get started on the Chick-fil-A, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's, it is an, it's very much an interrupted landscape. But if we stop for just a moment and understand what unfolded there, on the afternoon of November the 30th of 1864, it makes all the reason in the world that it should be preserved and it should be saved. And we're going to get into that story here yeah. in a second. I know you guys are having a anniversary type, not party, but like an anniversary type thing this week. And then next year is a really big push. So tell us what's happening this week with the Battle of Franklin Trust. So uh, in recent years, uh, you would have been able to have gone to either Carter House or Carnton and taken part in what was called the Illumination. Which I, I did that, I think I think it was 2018, I did the one at the Carter House. Right, yes. right. Um, and then in 2021, we made the decision to kind of pull back a little bit from the illumination itself because what had happened is that you do the same thing so long you know uh my boss our ceo eric jacobson likes to joke that uh, you have to wonder uh if kiss feels the same way going Every out and singing yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> uh right um you go out and you play the same seven like the same six songs all night long right um it started to get to a point where maybe the illumination wasn't capturing the spirit of the event that we had hoped that it could. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we moved to this kind of more reserved but much more somber and I think much more appropriate uh, time to reflect on the event. And so what we've done over the last year and then this year now uh, is we'll have the sites open from 5 to 7 p.m. for kind of an immersive tour experience. So in, rather than kind of talk about the house and walk around and see the light can- the lighted candles. Instead, you'll be thrust right into the cellar with the Carter family mm-hmm. as they took shelter down there in the battle, uh, throughout the battle, throughout that night. And if you go over to Carnton, you'll be put in the situation of the McGavocks walking through their home, seeing the house as a field hospital. And if you join us on uh, November the 29th down at Ripavilla, you'll be with Susan Shares and the family 
as they watched as 28,000 men, some 800 wagons, and 50 pieces of Federal artillery evaded the Confederate Army that night, slipping right by along the Columbia Turnpike. It is an incredible moment for us to understand the gravity of the event, certainly that took place 159 years ago, but where that event fits in our understanding of the Civil War and what the Civil War still means to us today in 2023 Because you could go to the illumination and you can look at a thousand lit up candle bags, but that was a reflection of the loss. Yep. It wasn't so much a reflection of who we are and what the nation had become because of the American Civil War and why the war is so relevant. Yeah, it it is. It is powerful. I've I've been to the Carter House now on tours uh, over probably 35 times. And every single time I walk away, and I'm like, this is, it's powerful. It's, it's uh, impactful. It's inspiring, uh, and especially from, like, a military technician standpoint of, like, what they did in, in this, with this five hours of battle. Like, it was crazy what happened during the five hours. So this is happening this week, uh, where, and this is a free event. Correct. Okay. And so people can learn more about that by visiting uh, battlefranklintrust.com. Yeah, if or you go to boft.org and yep. go to events, and then you'll see a tab for uh, Spring Hill and Franklin commemoration. Okay, so let, let's that's the event. So head over to that. Uh, now let's get into the battle and, and, and these two days of battle. And first off, before we get into that, what got you into uh, studying history and then actually going to school for history? I don't mean to backtrack too, but I should also mention that on Friday and Saturday, we will have a living history presence at Carter House. So uh, we have a partnership with a group called the Independent Rifles. They are a top quality kind of living history organization. They'll be hosting uh, programming, educational programming and interpretive programming throughout the day at 10, 12, and 2. Oh, that's great. And that's at the Carter House. And is that free as well or that is, is that paid? Uh, so you'll have to purchase a grounds pass to yep. be on the grounds, but that grounds pass does go towards helping uh, maintain our facilities, maintain the grounds and upkeep. Awesome. Very so cool. Money goes to a good cause, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but to answer your question, how did I get into history? Um that's always a fun one, right? It is, because uh, <laughs> both you and I are, are young. I'm a little bit older than you, but I talk to a lot of people, I, I, I meet a lot of people, and they're like, why are you so fascinated with history? And I'm like, it's it's defined where we are mm-hmm. and who we are. And um, if we don't know it, as I said, we're doomed to repeat it. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in very much a household that rather than go to Disney World, we went to Gettysburg. Yep. Uh, and that's kind of been my long-running joke is I think uh, the the twinkle in my father's eye was somewhere near like Culp's Hill or maybe a little okay. round top. Yep. Uh, and then I got both of my degrees in history when I was in school at Southeastern Louisiana University down in Hammond, Louisiana. Uh, I graduated with my master's in 2021, and I relocated here in June of 2021, started working for the Battle of Franklin Trust on June the 18th, a day that I guess will live in infamy. Um, And then from that point forward, um, I've worked as an interpreter. I've worked as a guide. I also host our podcast, The Dispatch, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust. I've appeared in several of the different films, and I've worked on the Dispatch magazine, uh, writing articles, historical research in that that field. Over the last uh, year, though, I've worked a little bit more hand-in-hand in terms of interpretation, and now uh, as a historian, kind of, in, I guess I'm the caretaker of a lot of records and archival uh, research material as well. Very cool. So going to Gettysburg is what inspired you to get into history or I, something like that. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, that, but then you know, everybody else was reading 
uh, oh goodness, the Diaries of a Wimpy Kid. And yeah. I was the one sitting there reading like um, uh, Stephen Sears' The Landscape Turned Red about the Battle of Antietam. And I was yeah, in yeah. like fifth grade. Yeah. So there was there was definitely something wrong with me, but you know. So being a historian, what's, and I probably the Civil War is your favorite, but what's your favorite like history or era to study? Um, so, well, I, I guess I have to qualify it by saying, I, I don't know that I call it my favorite because it sounds like it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, you know, the Civil War is so cool. It was a terrible, awful tragedy. Yeah, it was awful. But. Right. Um, but my research and my interest has always focused around and centered around the American Civil War with a kind of secondary interest in the Second World War. Okay. Um, so I guess those two probably, 19th century, kind of mid-19th century politics and warfare, and then the Second World War. Yeah, th- there's some really... Uh there's a um he's a comic like artist and he does like these history books you probably have seen them he does he did one on the american civil war mm-hmm. and world war Two, and it's like telling you the history through comics it's, it's really fun it's really fun i'll have to send it to you if yeah. you don't know what, what i'm talking about all right so let's get into the battle of franklin uh let's start with the battle of spring hill and then walk through what happened mm-hmm. to, towards the end of the battle of franklin Okay, so we're, what, this is the 27th that we're recording, yes, right? Yep. So 159 years ago right now, uh, two armies are on the move. The Confederate Army of Tennessee under the command of General John Bell Hood uh, and the United States Army under the command of General John McAllister Schofield. Both of these men know each other, both 33 years old, both graduated from West Point, roommates, classmates, friends, incredible kind of coincidence there. Which, which like, that story alone, they were roommates at one point at yeah. West Point. Like yeah. They knew each other. That It, it is... I tell that story to some people, and they're like, they were roommates, and they're like, that that's not yeah. true. And I'm like, dude, they, they, they were yeah, really they were roommates. pals. Yeah. yeah, you know, they uh, probably wrote each other letters and talked to each other certainly yeah. uh, before the war. You know, they were both in the pre-war army, uh, but they're very, very different men. Did but they graduate at the same time from West Point? They both graduated in the class of '53. Yeah, okay. uh, Schofield was ranked seventh, Hood was ranked forty-fourth. Okay. Yeah, um, and a lot of people will criticize Hood and they'll say, well, he graduated forty-fourth. He wasn't that smart. Well. I mean, they started with like a hundred cadets, and they yeah, only yeah. graduated fifty-two. So, I'm going to put them kind of average, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, but these two men knew each other before the war, and by this phase of the war, 1864, John Bell Hood's been wounded twice: his left arm uh, badly damaged during the Battle of Gettysburg, his right leg amputated four inches beneath the hip after the Battle of Chickamauga. Uh, John Schofield, on the other hand, is just a, an incredible. Um, leader in in the kind of the political sense he's he's not going to draw his sword and inspire you to charge up a hill but he'll put you in the right situation to do the right thing at the right time Uh, these two armies are on a collision course and they will uh, run into one another down south of us in columbia and there are two days of fighting but by the 28th of november schofield had pulled his army to the north side of the duck river and effectively cut off John Bell Hood's advances, uh, his hope for advance on the city of Nashville, which had been the ultimate objective for the Confederate Army. Recapture the city of Nashville. Prolong the war. Prolong the war, yeah. Yep. And, and that's Schofield's job is to stop Hood from doing that or delay him as long as possible, while General George Henry Thomas, the commander of Nashville's defenses, gathered troops uh, to reinforce the city. Uh, so Hood and Schofield dueling it out on the Duck River. By the morning of the 29th, 5 a.m., uh, in the morning on November the 29th, John Bell Hood begins a flanking maneuver. He's going to take 20,000 of his 30,000 men and shift them seven miles uh, to the east of town, and then march 12 miles behind John Schofield's lines to the town of Spring Hill. If he can get to Spring Hill, his hope, block the Columbia Turnpike, cut off uh, today's U.S. Highway 31, the Columbia Turnpike then, uh, which would be Schofield's access to Nashville. 
cut him off from his access to Nashville, destroy the Federal Army in Spring Hill, and turn and march on Nashville unopposed. It's a great plan. It relies on two things. John Schofield stays still, and the Confederate Army blocks the Columbia Turnpike, neither of which will come uh, to be. The Confederate Army falls short by some 400 yards in this just series of mysteries that unfold that night. Communications breakdowns, uh, just failure to understand and failure to follow through orders, and then just sheer exhaustion weighs down the Confederate Army, and that night John Schofield all throughout the day, he had moved much of his artillery and his wagons out of uh, Columbia and onto Spring Hill. And then that night, he slips his infantry column right by. I mean, 28,000 men, 800 wagons, 50 pieces of artillery, and 6,000 animals to move it all will move right past the Confederate Army. Well, so there, there was stories, uh, just to give more clarification, I wish I had a map. So right there is Columbia <laughs> Pike, uh, or Turnpike, and uh, to the right and to the left, about 100 yards away from the road, from, from what I've heard. Uh, there were soldiers, Confederate soldiers, mm -hmm. and they heard the Union or Federal Army walking by them, but they did nothing. Uh, so they were in. There are instances where soldiers hear things, yeah, uh, but they're waiting on orders to advance on the road. And, and some soldiers are saying, like, you know, we thought, we knew that an order would come, and then it never did. Yeah, you know, it's, which is bizarre. Oh, absolutely. And there, you know, the the is that the first time in the American Civil War something like where twenty eight thousand men just went through a defensive line. Uh, I've never seen anything else quite like it. Okay. Um, you know, I, I tell people a lot on tour, I think it is the most daring escape in the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. It might be the most daring escape in the history of the United States Army. Oh, hands down. Uh, and, and I think... I can't think of any other battle that's happened in American history. I mean, like Washington, that. when he evacuates from New York, maybe, but like, even then... Yeah. It's not 28,000 men. It's yeah. not 800 wagons. There's no yeah. artillery to, to really speak of in the same kind of caliber. That with with Washington, what, it was like 2,000? I think so, yeah. yeah. But okay. he's, he mean, he's slipping away from a British army yeah. uh, and kind of vanishing off into the night. John Schofield's making it very clear that he's just marching to get out ahead of Hood, and he does. Um, and I think that's one of the things that is so incredible about the escape is why didn't the Confederate Army know about it? Well, no one could have anticipated that they would just that he would have done that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. who in their right mind says, you know, I've got this great idea. I'm just going to march right through them. And he did. I mean, he passes right by the Confederate Army. And he makes his way to Franklin by around 4 a.m. And about an hour later to the south, down in Spring Hill, the Confederate Army starts to wake up and realize what unfolded. How long of a, uh, is a route is that, like in miles? Uh, from Columbia to Franklin? Well, mm -hmm. it would be about 12 miles from Columbia to Franklin or Columbia to Spring Hill, and then another 14 miles from Spring Hill to Franklin. So they're basically walking over a marathon. Almost 30 day. miles, yeah. And then they fight. Now this. Yeah. Yeah, we're so lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah. think about that on a campaign tour. Like, oh, I've got to start down in Spring Hill and get to Franklin. By the time I get to Franklin, I've been on tour for three hours. Oh, I'm so tired. Yeah, and yeah. then I realized, like, yeah, okay, these guys I could have just... walked, and then I could have to fight for my life for the next five hours. Yeah, you yeah. know, this four-hour tour really isn't that bad. So Schofield and his and his uh, army get into Franklin, mm -hmm. but there there's some issues with happening with Franklin at that time. Correct. So Schofield they're pushing for Fort Nagley in Nashville. Correct. Uh, Schofield wants to either get to Brentwood or get to Franklin or get to rather to Nashville. Yep. Um, but he gets to Franklin around 4 a.m. and discovers that the Harpeth River had flooded two weeks earlier, taken out the county bridge, the footbridge, and washed out much of the earthen fords that surrounded the area. So. He has to set to his Corps of Engineers, Captain William Twinning, commanding that uh, group of men. And he, he places Twinning in charge of planking the top of the railroad trestle 
uh, and his intention is to cross the army by 6 o'clock in the evening. So he gives Twining effectively 14 hours to get the bridge ready and then get the army out of town. In the meantime, 20,000 federal soldiers start to entrench on the south side of town. Some troops move to the north side, crossing over the Harpeth as they can. Uh, and then they, the 20,000 men on the south side will uh, construct three-foot and four-foot high earthen uh, embankments, earthworks, defensive works, field works, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and in addition to those 20,000 men, some 34 pieces of artillery rolled onto the line. Artillery, uh, is, I think that's the one thing about the Battle of Franklin that gets so understated. It's just the sheer power that's of a lot. federal artillery. That's a lot of artillery. Yeah. What, six-inch cannons, eight-inch uh, cannons? Three-inch ordnance rifles, huh? uh, and they're capable of firing about 1,900 yards. And then you've got the 12-pound Napoleons, the smoothbore guns, they can fire about 1,400, 1,500 yards. So you've got a, that's lot, a lot of, of artillery. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of firepower. Yeah. So they're, they're building out this earthworks, and then... Uh, when does Hood get into the south side of, of Franklin overlooking the hill? Uh, so he'll probably get to Franklin around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Yep. Uh, waking up with the army down in Spring Hill around 5, 5.30. He's in the saddle by 5.30, and he's meeting with his principal corps commander, General Benjamin Cheatham, by around 6 a.m. And he tells Cheatham, essentially, we got to find him. we got to find Schofield, and we've got to beat him now before he gets to Nashville. Uh, and that very much becomes the kind of uh, objective for the day find Schofield and destroy him, and then march on Nashville. Which, Time's which, ticking. This, this is fast-forwarding a little bit with the Nashville story, but what most people don't realize is Nashville had an eight-mile defensive line Yeah, for for the city, to defend the city. Fully defensible and fully yeah. fortified, but poorly manned. Yes, and that's very the thing. poorly manned. Yeah, so but the, it, the it, objective for Hood is to just get there. Yep. Because if he, he takes the western flank up by the, uh, the Harpeth, mm -hmm. he, he can overtake the city. Even if if he would have arrived in Nashville on, let's say, December the 1st or the 2nd, and we're doing the what if, and I know that yeah, yeah. you shouldn't do that as a historian, I get that, but I think it qualifies the point, there's probably only eight to 10,000 men in Nashville. If Schofield's defeated in the way that Hood sees that he would be, there's only eight to 10,000 men yeah. there, and he's got an army of 33,000. I mean, the the odds are very clearly in his favor. And but Schofield gets there first with twenty eight thousand men yep. plus the other sixteen thousand plus the other twenty thousand. All of a sudden, he's he's looking at much higher odds. And, and just to give people context, uh, Nashville was the first Confederate city to fall to the Union Army, and they basically used the city as a defensive line and a supply line for the army. Correct. And so that was really early on in the war. So uh, he gets into Franklin. Uh, Hood gets into Franklin around one p.m. Mm -hmm. and What's the deciding factor? Hey, we're, we're going to push this. We're going to have a two-mile line, and we're going to push. Uh, generally, it's it's that he needs to get to Nashville. Okay. Uh, Schofield's army is by around 1.30 in the afternoon already crossing over the Harpeth River, and Hood can see that. Yep. Uh, and the other thing that, that he knows is that this is the last field of advantage that he'll have, is that if Hood could commit to an attack right now at you know November the 30th that afternoon, he could catch Schofield in the open with his back to the Harpeth River. But if Schofield gets across the Harpeth, now Hood would have to try and outflank Schofield and fight with his back to Nashville. And he can't let that happen. Yep. So Franklin's it. Um, and he's been criticized ever since for making the decision to attack at Franklin. Historians, other historians uh, have said things like he wasn't fit for command. It was a slaughter. It was senseless. It was all these other things. Right? We can criticize him all day long. Uh, and I think I told you this when, when we spoke when you came over to the Carter House a couple weeks ago, is you know, 
General Hindsight wins all of his battles, but John Bell Hood has to make the best decision that he can that day for his army, yeah, yeah. and that's to attack. Yeah. Uh, so he orders his men into lines of battle, and by 4 o'clock, it takes him almost three hours to move into position. Uh, by 4 o'clock, they've assembled into a, defense, or excuse me, into a, a battle line almost two and a half miles wide, from Carter's Creek Pike to the south of town, all the way along the south side, until they get over to Carnton to the east. Six divisions strong, 20,000 men. Uh, and at 4 o'clock, he gives the signal for the attack to begin, and the Confederates begin to sweep up from the south edge of town. Uh, General George Day Wagner, who commands an advanced Federal line out front, uh, his troops are driven in in a panic, and it opens up the door then for the Confederate breakthrough near the Carter farm. And then you've got the Carters, who are caught in the middle of all the civilians, forced out of their house down into their cellar, and they are taking shelter in a cellar surrounded by the fight all around them. Over at Carnton, you've got the McGavocks pushed into the situation where they are uh, inundated with Confederate wounded coming back into their house. And we'll see the fight rage on for about five hours. Over on the eastern side, it's, it's probably done in about two hours. But over to the center where the Carter farm is, there's hand-to-hand combat up close, in person. Uh, you know, the bayonets being used, rifles are being swung through the air like clubs. Men are fighting and dying and fighting for their lives, some of them, for the very first time ever having been uh, deployed into the, action. Uh, yeah, especially for the Army of Tennessee on the Confederate side. Uh, I, even more so for the, for, the, uh, for the Army of the Ohio and the Army okay. of the Cumberland. Those troops uh, in the Army of the Ohio, there's the 44th Missouri. It's part of uh, 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 Schofield and Cox's defensive line, General uh-huh. Jacob Cox. This is their first fight. They'd never been deployed into action. They'd only mustered into the Army earlier that month. Yeah. Um, And then there's soldiers in the 183rd Ohio and some soldiers in the 175th Ohio. They've never been engaged. So this is their first day, really, their first day on the job, right, if you would, as a soldier. Uh, Their first day in a battle, and it's this awful, harrowing fight that will unfold around them. And and I don't want to make it sound like... You know, Franklin's more violent than, say, Gettysburg or more violent than Antietam. All of these battles are terrible. All of these battles are costly. But to think that these men had, in September of 1864, been sitting at home in Missouri and by November of 1864 had been put on a paddle boat in St. Louis and sent up to Paducah, Kentucky, from Paducah down to Nashville, and then from Nashville marched down to Columbia, joined Schofield's army, and then fought at Franklin. That's a lot. All in the span of uh, two months. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. That that that, that is a lot. And these six hundred and forty-seven men—they take a little bit more than a hundred casualties, but they become the the section of the line that holds back the Confederate attack into the night. Oh yeah, if it wasn't for them, uh, them and and then the cannons of yeah. the, the the artillery as we were talking about, right? Uh, and then two counterattacks that are unleashed by Brigadier General James Riley on one side of the pike, and then Colonel Emerson Opdyke on the other. Had it not been for all of those factors, the reserves, the rallied soldiers from Wagner's line, the secondary line, those brand new men, uh, and the artillery, and then I, I would say just the good kind of solid leadership of men like Jacob Cox and all of those regimental and company and uh, officers, had it not been for them in that moment, I think Jacob Cox spoke to this very perfectly uh, in 1897. He said it came down to courage, nerve, and discipline. Yep. So the really interesting thing about this is you said it, the battle started at 4 p.m. This was before daylight savings was a thing. Right. So you would have, what, an hour of sunlight for this battle, give or take? 37 minutes. 37 minutes of yeah. sunlight. So the, the first uh, line fell to the Confederates. The, right. the Union uh, Army started to retreat to go back to their secondary line. Correct. 
This is down towards Columbia Plank near that Chick-fil-A. Uh, so the, the advanced line is about 500 yards outside the main line. So it's okay. Battle Avenue, Carolyn Avenue. Yep, yep, yep. The main federal line is along Straw Street, Claiborne Street. Uh, and then as that line, a section of that line breaks, probably about a 200-yard gap, they fall back to what's called the retrenchment. So yep. really there's three lines uh, that are there, the Wag Wagner's advance line, the main line, and the retrenchment where the line is actually held and maintained. So during that 37 minutes of battle, they start to retreat. And is this story true that uh, on the Union side, do you call them the Union or Federal Army? Uh, federal or United States Army, yeah. yeah. It's the same uh, it's army. A, it's, yeah. Uh, I, I, I know I just talked to so many people and they're like, oh, it's the federal. And I'm like, union, it's the same, it's the same thing. But, um, okay, so on the federal army, they couldn't tell the difference because of the the hour of the day and mm -hmm. the time between Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers. So they started shooting at their own boys, right? Is that correct? Uh, I've not heard that. It's not uncommon that there could okay. have been a friendly fire instance. I, I've heard um, that from three or four different like guides at there, at the there is a There is a moment where a counterattack is launched to try and retake the main federal line from the retrenchment uh, and simply not being able to see who was moving. The reserve federal line fired onto that counterattack, the, their own federal okay. counterattack. Uh, and in that instance, you know, Captain James Sexton went to Jacob Cox and told him, Sexton's of the 72nd Illinois, part of the regiments that went out uh, to try and retake the main line. He went to Cox and told him, you've got to tell them not to fire at us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they're hitting their own men. So in terms of during the five hours earlier on during the hand-to-hand -hand combat, I don't know, uh, probably not. But that evening as the counterattack was launched, that is the one instance that I can think of. Yes. Okay. So the uh, some historians have said this is the five bloodiest hours in American history. Um, is that true or is that false? <laughs> I know that's hard to define. Right. Because how do because because Pearl Harbor like yeah I go to the how do you qualify that how yeah. do you quantify it right um, so this is it's a question that comes up on battlefield tours all the time and you know I think I've only come up with the best answer in the last like six months. Um, I don't know necessarily how how to figure that number, how to figure out the percentages and how to balance out the casualties. But I told you earlier, you know, I went to Gettysburg, right? And I stood in uh, the Sherfy Peach Orchard and I had the ranger there tell me this is the bloodiest spot in the entire American Civil War. Same trip I was in Antietam and I took a tour there and they said in Miller's Cornfield, this is the bloodiest spot in the entire American Civil War. Okay, so now I'm starting to think, well, which one is it? Could it be Gettysburg? Is it Antietam? I, I don't know. Uh, and then I took a tour, uh, kind of my own self-driving tour around uh, Chancellorsville, Spotsylvania, and I hit all of that stuff towards the very end of the war. And, and there near the area of where Five Forks was, I heard the same thing. This is the bloodiest spot in the American Civil War. Go to Shiloh. You stand at the hornet's nest. What did yeah. I say? This is one of the bloodiest spots in the American Civil War. So which one is it? Yeah. Right. And and I always tell people, I'm not going to show you or tell you that Franklin is the bloody spot in the entire American Civil War, Thir mostly because. Mostly because it, it I don't know that it changes what happened there. Yep. I don't know that it 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 in any way maybe um, makes it more impactful, but think for a moment about a 45 year old man like Jackson Hawkeye Griffith in one of the Texas regiments that charges the earthworks and say a 27-year-old 
like Captain Aaron Baldwin of the 6th Ohio Battery, those men were in a fight for their survival. And for five hours, their fate was uncertain. Yep. Baldwin survived and Griffith didn't. There's something to be said for the immense loss, certainly. And there's something to be said for that just sheer will to survive that you see in so many of these men. I I don't know that I would ever call it the five bloodiest hours or the five most tragic hours. Uh, but I know certainly that it was five of the hardest hours of fighting that any of these soldiers had ever done. Especially, like, how how often did nighttime battles happen? Not that often. Yep. Night fighting is is incredibly rare throughout the war. So is the use of the bayonet and yep. the frequency by which these men are charging into combat using their bayonets during the Battle of Franklin is unparalleled, mm-hmm. I think, throughout the rest of the war. The only thing that comes close to it is maybe the mule shoe gap. Okay. Um, yeah. And then maybe the fighting at the crater, okay. just in terms of intensity and the the kind of the, the hand just the, the hand sheer on. violence yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Can we can we talk about um, Fountain Branch Carter and his sons? We sure can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Fountain Branch Carter is sixty-seven years old the day of the battle. His oldest surviving son, Moscow Carter, had already come home from the war. How much how um, much land did he have at this area at this time? By eighteen sixty, a little bit more than two hundred and eighty acres. Okay. Yeah, so he's got, um, you know, the kind of typical consumable crops, and he's also got a cotton field across was the he, street. Was he the one who did the primary land clearing of that area, or was that done prior to him? Uh, he purchased the acreage in the, what, 1829? Okay. Uh, so I think to have much of the area around the house, first the house would have to be constructed, yeah, yeah, and course. the grounds around it would have to be constructed as well, okay. uh, or at least developed anyways, mm-hmm. right? Um, but he's got the, uh, what's the apple orchard peach orchard down towards one side of the hill he's got the cotton field across the street uh he had been married in 1829 uh, excuse me 1823 rather uh 1823 and he and his wife polly had 12 children in their marriage seven of them that lived to see the american civil war and survived it uh and then we see of course todd frank and moscow in 1861 all join the 20th tennessee infantry and they head off to war uh, Moscow's and Lieutenant Colonel Todd and Frank, both junior officers. Moscow's captured January of 1862 up in Kentucky in the prison at Fort Warren in Boston, Massachusetts. But he's paroled and released, and he's home throughout the end of 1862 and 63 and 64. He swears an oath of loyalty, doesn't go back to the fight. Frank is wounded uh, at the Battle of Shiloh, continues to fight through the end of the war, captured down uh, near New Orleans and in prison there through 65. But then there's Todd, right? And everybody wants to talk about Todd Carter. Uh, Todd Carter is 24 years old the day of the Battle of Franklin, and he's a staff officer, part of General Thomas Benton Smith's brigade and his staff. Um, Todd has no, I guess, real reason to be in the fight, in the situation and the placement that he's put himself in. He's a staff officer. He doesn't have to take part in the assault. He could be to the rear with the rest of the brigade staff, uh, watching, but instead, for whatever reason, uh, I don't, we'll never know what compelled him to do it. He went forward with the attack and supposedly said something to the effect of, follow me, boys, I'm almost home. Whatever the case, the next morning, one of uh, Benton Smith's other staff officers arrives at the home, finds Fountain Branch Carter, and tells him that his son's out on the battlefield. 
And Fountain Branch goes out with probably two, but maybe three of the female members of his family. Certainly his two daughters, Annie Vic and Mary Alice, but maybe his uh, daughter-in-law and Sally Dobbins Carter. And they walk out onto the battlefield looking for Todd Carter. And if you can think for just a moment about the sheer carnage that they're being met with that morning. You know, there are 2,500 dead men. Yeah, they're in the basement of their house, which is like basically like a a cool storage area for food. Right. And then they have to emerge from that because they they didn't emerge, what, for five or six hours after the battle happened? They come out the next morning and they are just, I mean, all around them. Moscow Carter said there were some 57 dead men between the porch of the house and the kitchen. And then there's 2,500 dead men laying on the south side of town and thousands of wounded all along the south side. Yeah. And then there was also a story I've heard once that there was, uh, that with the hand to hand combat, there was guys, Confederate guys that were dead standing straight up. Yeah, it's just because of the bodies. right, just yeah. the sheer kind of quality yeah. uh, quantity of the men on the ground, uh, uh, propping them up. Yeah, yep. there's a couple of accounts that I've yeah, read yeah. about that. Yeah, um, but this kind of the Carter party, if you would, goes out onto the battlefield looking for Todd, um, and they find him, and he's still just just barely alive, and he's brought back into the house. A surgery is performed by a surgeon of the 20th Tennessee, Doctor Deering Roberts. Uh, and Robert essentially um, extracts the ball just above his left eye, a bullet that had lodged itself above his left eye. And that's that's the one that's essentially to remove it would make him comfortable. Todd never regains consciousness, never opens his eyes, very likely never knows where he is. Uh, but he dies in the house that he was born in uh, just some 24 years earlier. Which is, if you think about that, like that is... A crazy story that you don't hear about much. Today. Oh, absolutely! It's incredibly rare, but you know, I I also I like to qualify that by th- saying you know it's Todd's story certainly, but it's also Fountain Branch Carter's story. Yeah, you know, Fountain Branch is sixty-seven years old. He's he's lost his wife. He's lost other children. He's watched this incredible battle take place on his his property, his farm. And then that morning, something that he could never have imagined is that his son would be out there. You know, and and you know, I say this as an expectant father. You say this as a father. Think about being the father that has to walk out into all of this and look for your child. Oh yeah, I and then I can't imagine it. He spends, you know, Moscow said that he that Todd lingered for about twenty four hours. Well, if that's the case, then Fountain Branch Carter sat next to his son and watched him die for the better part of a day, mm-hmm. and then got something when Todd died that maybe 2,500 other fathers don't get is that he knows. Yeah. He knows where Todd was. He knows how he died. He's with him. And then he'll be the one with his family that will bury him just a few days later, not like some of the other men who are buried in kind of two-foot and three-foot very hasty graves over a two-day period, and the Confederate Army marches out of Franklin, leaving behind this town that's reeling with the fact that in five hours of combat on November the 30th of 1864, there's close to 10,000 casualties. You know, you've got 7,500 Confederate casualties and 2,300 federal casualties. It's just slaughter. It's terrible. And then they leave Franklin behind, march up to Nashville, sit through, uh, what, two weeks of ice and snow, rain and sleet, and then by the 14th of December, General George Thomas is ready to come out of the city's defenses, and he launches his attack on the morning of the 15th, and he start to cave in a portion of Hood's army by the evening of this the 16th. This is uh, over at Shy's Hill. 
uh, yeah, the the kind of the Traveler's right rest, center of the line, yeah. Uh, yeah. and then they'll start to break the line back towards uh, from Granny White Pike back down towards Franklin Road. Yep, and by uh, the kind of the afternoon of the sixteenth, the entire Confederate Army is just in retreat, and by the seventeenth, they'll retreat right back through Franklin. Yep, um, and as they go back through Franklin, they'll be fighting on the north side of the Harpeth River. They'll fight back near Winstead Hill. They'll fight back near the smaller kind of the western portions of the Harpeth, the West Harpeth River, uh, and then the Confederate Army will encamp back in Spring Hill again on the evening of the twenty, uh, the evening of the uh, the seventeenth. Think about how haunting it must have been, because they're, they're to, still at that time. Because that that would be eighteen days. Yeah. There would still be Confederate soldiers that were not buried at that point, correct? Uh, in terms of the dead, no, most of them are buried, but only but the, the the Shiloh, like the two foot graves, right? Right. They, I think there were stories. Not, I, I can't remember if it was like the month after, but there were stories of like there was a fl- another flood that happened. So it's it's the two weeks of ice and snow, yep. and then the thaw. Yeah, and the thaw is what kind of brings some of the remains out of the ground. So you've yep. got you've okay. got remains sitting on the surface. You've got a town. Still Devastated. nursing yeah, yeah. thousands of wounded. I mean, Carnton still had some three dozen wounded men there by Christmas of 64. So if you give that a few extra days, right? Uh, and then to have to march back through Franklin, a place where so many of these men had watched their friends and their brothers and their comrades be killed or wounded. You march back through Franklin in retreat and you end up where but Spring Hill, where you could really argue the entire disaster started on the 29th. And you you're sleeping there again, and I don't know how how could you even sleep at Spring Hill? Yeah, yeah. Uh, knowing what you know, I mean, other than just being just sheerly, just purely exhausted. Yep. How else could you convince yourself to go to sleep? Because you never know what you might wake up to. The last time John Schofield was yeah, gone, right? Army going to sneak through, right? Yeah. Uh, and then they cross back over the Tennessee River on the 28th of December, uh, and on the 28th, you know, you down think, towards Alabama, right? Uh, back into Mississippi. Mississippi. They'll cross into Mississippi. Um, but you think about what Hood crossed the army with, right? So they'll cross out of Tennessee into Alabama and then into, into yeah, Mississippi, yeah. right? Yep. Um, you think about what he crossed the army with on... Crossed the river with. Back on November the 21st when they yep. crossed the first time, right? It was 30... 33,000 men, mm-hmm. 121 pieces of artillery, right? He's got supplies, he's... This is a reinvigorated army on their way to try and invade Tennessee and recapture the Confederate capital and drag out the war and and prevent Southern defeat, right? And by the 28th of December, they limp back across the Tennessee River. And by the time he makes it to Tupelo in January of 1865, he's only got 18,600 or so men left. Hmm. You know, the army's melting away. Yeah, and yeah. He resigns command, and he's relieved on the 23rd. Is that when he... He moves to Texas almost immediately after the war, right? Uh, he, so he goes to Richmond okay. to meet with the Confederate president and kind of turn in his report. Um, and when he's in, when he's there, he's basically instructed, okay, that's great. Glad to have you back. Make your way down to Texas and try and recruit an army to fight out the war in Texas because the kind of, at this point, delusional expectation of the Confederate government is that they might have to fight a guerrilla warfare kind of style conflict down in Texas. Mm -hmm. So Hood's supposed to make his way down there, and he is uh, captured and paroled in May of 1865 near Natchez, Mississippi. Then after the war, he moves 
to Texas, back to his adopted kind of home state, as he called it. But by 1868, and actually moved to New Orleans. Okay. Uh, and that's the year he gets married to his wife, Anna Hennon. Uh, and in their marriage, they would actually have 11 children, including uh, three sets of twins. Wow. Uh, and then he, in 1878, uh, becomes sort of financially destitute after a yellow fever epidemic had broken down the cotton industry and the insurance industry that he was involved in. And by 1879, uh, unable to flee the city uh, to get away from that year's yellow fever epidemic, he, his wife, and his oldest daughter all die within about a week's time of one another. Wow. Uh, and he dies August the 30th of 1879. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how, what could people, what's the takeaway for today from the Battle of Franklin? Uh, in terms of what the Battle of Franklin represents to us, I think it shows us the intensity of the of the American Civil War. Certainly, I mean, you can't open the door of the Carter Farm Office and see the bullet-riddled walls or the bloodstains on the floor over at Carnton or the proximity of the, the Columbia Turnpike at Ripavilla and understand the gravity of the war without those things, I think, mm -hmm. right? Um, but, uh, two, the Battle of Franklin itself represents this last kind of last six months of the war last incredibly desperate action of the war. And it shows you not only the intensity, but certainly the maybe the vigor that was left in so many of these soldiers and federal and Confederate, right? Because if you're a Confederate soldier, you're thinking, you know, this is worth dying for because, you know, here we are at the end of the war. And, you know, to go home is to acknowledge the end, uh, to acknowledge emancipation, to acknowledge the end of slavery, to acknowledge... Uh, you know, the end of the kind of Southern agrarian lifestyle, right? Uh, and if you are in the Federal Army, the United States Army, this is one last fight where maybe this could just be it. If you finish off the fight here, it could just all be over and you could go back home. And you don't have to stay down in Tennessee and you don't have to march through the kind of awful summers of Mississippi and Alabama and you don't, you don't have to fight for your life day in and day out and avoid all these diseases that are rampaging the camps. Maybe, just maybe, this could be the fight that ends the war. But in a larger sense, I think we can look at Franklin and we look at our American Civil War as this bloody reckoning. You know, we had been only a nation for some 80 years. And we began with these incredibly innately good principles. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. By the time we get to the 1830s and 1840s, we'll start to see... There's already rumors uh, of civil war at that time. Oh, yeah. I mean, the nullification crisis mm -hmm. of the 1830s sets it off, but by the time we get to 1848, you know, John C. Calhoun, the mm -hmm. South Carolinian, he had said that uh, the phrase all men are created equal contains not a single shred of truth within it. And by the time we get to 1858, Stephen Douglas, in his debates with Abraham Lincoln, said that uh, the phrase all men are created equal could only have applied to white Anglo-Saxon men. And by the time we get to 1860, we elect the 16th president of the United States and Abraham Lincoln, the head of the anti-slavery Republican Party, and a month later, South Carolina's gone. Then the war begins by April of 1861. We are a nation testing whether or not... The republic the, can last. Right. Yes. I mean, if, if we, we, you know, we think about what Lincoln said in Gettysburg, November 63, we are engaged now in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. By the end of the four years, the nation had survived. The experiment in American liberty was allowed to continue. 
And you could argue that the end of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, did not perish from the earth, um, and that under God this nation would have a new birth of freedom. We would see that in the progress of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, certainly, but we would also see the violent pushback to Reconstruction, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the just outright paramilitary-style violence that was taking place oh, after yeah. the war. What, what What's the... Um the Federal Army had a standing army here in Tennessee of what, ten thousand yeah. men? Yeah, for, uh, under for the command years? of under the command of George Thomas from yeah. Nashville. He yeah. commanded the Department of, of Tennessee, and, and that's what that's when they built the um, uh, the building downtown, the uh, the Commerce Building, to collect taxes to make sure that this was getting paid for. Yeah. And then too, I mean, you know, Thomas was even writing about what was happening here in Tennessee. Is yeah, you know, you've got groups like the Ku Klux Klan being formed in Pulaski, and they're attacking. Uh, former slaves, they're attacking Freedmen's Bureau uh, workers, they're attacking soldiers, yep. veterans that are returning home from the war, uh, Union veterans, US, U.S. Army veterans. Um, so there's violence after the war, but all of that, I think, you know, we see the we see the progress of Reconstruction, we see the pushback to Reconstruction, but we also um, watch as Reconstruction fails by 1876, and we'll see 20 years of decay, and then we're into the next century, with a nation separated by, you know, separate but equal and Jim Crow laws. And I think the reality of the Civil War really hadn't been realized until we get to the Civil Rights Movement oh, and yeah, the centennial even, of yeah, the American yeah. Civil yeah. War. Because in the same time, 1963, that we're celebrating the or commemorating, rather, the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg is the same year that Martin Luther King Jr. will stand at the footsteps of the Lincoln Memorial. Yep. And, and stand in the shadow of Lincoln, who just 100 years earlier in November had talked about Gettysburg, had talked about what it would mean to the nation. And then there's King 100 years later. And then, you know, you could even argue that there's still the great unfinished work that remains before us. And we get you know, critici criticism from time to time for acknowledging A, slavery's role in the war, uh, and then B, that the nation had survived, and the, the war didn't cure us of all of our problems. It didn't make us, you know, the war didn't end in April of 65, and in May of 1865, we were the superpower that we are today, and everything is fair and equal, and we've done, you know, we've done our work, done and dusted, moving on to the next problem. It took a 100 years to really reckon with the war, and I think only in the last decade have we really begun to reckon with our American Civil War and the legacy of, uh, of, of the war, certainly in the legacy of the lost cause, and and certainly, I, I think it also has helped us to be able to look at battles like Franklin, battles like Spring Hill, battles like Gettysburg and Antietam and Shiloh and Vicksburg. And, you know, you start naming all the obscure ones. All of those brought us to either Appomattox in the Eastern Theater or to Bennett Place in the Western Theater. And those brought us to the end of the American Civil War. And the war brought us to a point where we were able to recommit ourselves truly and honestly to what we had started with. Yep. So, I mean, a long way around it is to say that's what I think Franklin can offer us, is a place to reflect on what the war still means to us uh, in a very honest way. Yeah, and then th there's so many subtopics that we can get into, like the U.S. prison systems and how slavery was still impactful right. yep. for the, another hundred years after right. the Civil War, uh, crop sharers. Uh, like, th there's so many things, that, topics that mm -hmm. we can break down into. 
Uh, Joseph, this has been a pleasure. I, I, I could sit here for hours talking <laughs> about this topic, and uh, I, I love learning. Uh, where can people learn about this in person? Where can people learn about it on the website, the podcast? Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about, uh, for closing, what you guys are doing for the 160th yeah. anniversary. Yeah, so uh, to learn more, you can visit our website, certainly boft.org, and go to our Learn tab, and there you'll find biographies of soldiers, and you'll see uh, write-ups on each of the individual houses. And one of the projects that we've been undertaking uh, uh, over the last several years is the interpretation of the enslaved at all three historic sites now, Carter House, Carnton, and Ripa Villa. And so we have biographies of some of those individuals as well that you can read about. You can take sort of a virtual tour uh, online, visit our YouTube channel where we are constantly uploading things. Uh, you know, we took like a six month kind of hiatus over the summer because it's our, our spring and summers are super busy period. Uh, and we've just gotten back to uh, introducing some of our new series. Uh, you know, we've got chalkboard history that uh, Eric Jacobson and I do. Uh, from time to time and then we've got our battlefield bits videos and we've got different battlefield tour videos that are being published uh, as well Uh, and then in terms of coming and taking a tour you know we operate three historic sites seven days a week we're open uh, Monday through Saturday from nine to five and Sunday from 11 to five Uh, you can purchase tickets online or simply just walk in uh, and take a tour, and the tours last an hour. You can sign up for some of our specialty tours as well. We offer a 90-minute extended tour at all three homes. We also offer battlefield tours, slavery and enslaved tours, uh, and then we offer uh, an Amer- and it's called the Amazing Grace Tour. Uh, it is a view of slavery and the American Civil War through the perspective, uh, through like a Christian biblical perspective. That's cool. Um, focusing on the William Wilberforce and the song American, Amazing Grace. Right. Yeah. And, and then uh, so it uses that as sort of the basic, the kind of the, the outline of it. But then, too, is the role of, say, chaplains um, and then the role of the enslaved. And uh, wow. so it, it's an incredible tour. Highly when recommend did, When that. did you guys introduce that one? Because I, I want to um, take that tour right now. We did that probably about a year ago. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to come down and take that tour. Yeah. Uh, book that online. And then uh, we've also got our reconstruction tours that we offer. So, you know, the stuff we were getting into right there towards the end, we cover that in our reconstruction tours. Um, and then we also offer what's called the Legacy of the Lost Cause Tour. Uh, that's a tour with Eric Jacobson, our CEO where we examine the role of the lost cause and the kind of legacy of the Confederacy mm. uh, in today. You know, how do we go from a, uh, you know, a Confederate government uh, founded to perpetuate slavery to, uh, you know, Patrick Swayze being passed, uh, cast as the, you know, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, the attractive Confederate soldier, right? You know, how do you get there? So uh, it's a little bit of that. And it's also a bit about monuments and memory, too. Uh, so those tours, all bookable online, and you can just show up and take a tour of the sites um, whenever you like. Yeah, Let's talk about the 160th anniversary next year. I know this is a big uh, anniversary for you guys. Yep. And this is going to be the first like large anniversary for you as the historian. Right. Yep. Uh, so what type of programming and stuff are you guys doing a year from now? Uh, so we're going to, in some ways, go back to you know the old drawing book, right? Reinvent the wheel again. Uh, but we're looking at almost a month-long series of programs between uh, kind of collaborations with the American Battlefield Trust. Uh, we're going to be ramping up kind of video production, certainly uh, focusing on some of the sort of forgotten aspects of the campaign uh, and visiting some places on the battlefields that we've not ever been on, uh, at least not ever been on with uh, YouTube videos, right? 
tracking some portions of the campaign, going down to Alabama, crossing the Tennessee River. We're going to be looking at some of those aspects. Uh, and then in terms of uh, the kind of educational programming, we'll be hopefully launching um, a sort of a symposium in the field, invited speakers, guests, and historians uh, to walk the battlefield with the public. Um, and so we'll be having some of those events. And then, of course, uh, on November the 29th and 30th, holding the events at each of the houses, which will con uh, continue to have that kind of um, uh, the, the free inner immersive tour experience coupled with what we're thinking of bringing back a form of the illumination uh, in terms of bringing back some of the luminaries in in a way that I think will it will challenge us to think about what the illumination was and what it could be. Um, and then the other part of it is that uh, in the week after the anniversary uh, into December, we'll be thinking about Carnton, specifically Carnton, what it would have looked like in December of 1864, after the battle's over, mm. after the fighting had ended, what did it look like as a convalescent kind of care? Uh, and so we'll actually have a living history program there the 6th through the 8th of December. Oh, that's cool. One-to-one uh, -one kind of scale representation yeah, yeah. of the 3rd Mississippi. Oh, that's cool. Um, and we're, you know, we're hopeful to set the house up in terms of it being a convalescent care station and think about you know, inviting the public into the home and, and have them think about what these sites would have looked like for the days and weeks to follow you know, the fighting. That's yeah. super cool. Well, Joseph, thank you so much. We're going. We're, we'll get you back on the show uh, probably throughout the next year. Uh, talk more about battles. Uh, I kind of want to bring you in for the battles of Stones River too, because yeah. that's a fun battle as well. Yeah, we got so much to talk about. Yeah, uh, thank you guys for joining us on the Explore Nash podcast. Uh, it is good to be back behind the microphone. Uh, more episodes coming soon. Head over to our Instagram account, Explore Nash, and watch us on YouTube at Explore Nash as well. And we'll see you guys on the next episode. We hope you have a great day. Adios. Thank you for listening to the Nashville Daily Podcast. If you want to learn more, head to NashvilleDailyPodcast.com. You can also follow us on social media at Explore.Nash on Instagram, Nashville Daily Podcast on YouTube, and Explore.Nash on YouTube as well. The Nashville Daily Podcast is an Explore LLC production, copyright 2023.